Today's podcast focuses on the race towards greener storage and the more efficient transfer of energy. Our speaker is Professor Wojciech Gorchala, a specialist in chemistry and molecular spectroscopy from the University of Warsaw in Poland. In this lecture, he describes ventures into the world of hydrogen fuel and other potential energy sources. We hope you enjoy this IFE podcast. So I come from the University of Warsaw. Uh, this is the central campus here uh, in the old city of Warsaw. Uh, the university is not very old uh, by European standards. It's uh, 200 years old and something. But, but, but if you go to Krakow, 300 kilometers south, there is one of the oldest European universities there, dating back to 1364. So uh, the, the center of new technologies here is a relatively newly established uh, 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 faculty, research faculty, that focuses mostly on research and not on, not on teaching. And uh, most people here in my group uh, are involved in either of the two, hydrogen storage or materials for magnetic memory or for superconductivity of electric current. Oh. So definitely uh, we all agree that, uh, that we see so much political tensions uh, about uh, resources of fossil fuels that one could be a bit idealistic to say maybe we could really start getting energy from the sun properly and then in some smart ways uh, store it and then reuse it for, for a number of applications. And my talk mostly will focus, as I said, on hydrogen storage and on superconductors, so, so on, on a two entirely different but somehow related topics here. So hydrogen storage is a very old topic, and there is this conclusive proof you know, of, of global warming, as, as, as you know. And you, you see everywhere you know, uh, CO2-friendly things, including charcoal, that my group uses for a grill. Well, leaving aside all, let's say, politics about CO2, let us really think about hydrogen as a, as a possible fuel that we could cheaply get from water, uh, photochemically splitting it. So if we do have hydrogen, that, then we need to store it somehow. And the state of the art uh, is simply pressurize hydrogen up to 1,000 bar. That's, that's a thing that all automotive companies uh, can, can, can handle. And this can be pretty safe. People showed it, it may be really safe, it's at the back of your car, and even if it's some, something happens that, you know, the bottle, which is, by the way, multi-layer bottle having Kevlar in it, so very much protected against any mechanical shock and so on. So even if this leaks at some point, hydrogen goes off in a spectacular way, and even if you set fire to it, after two minutes, the bottle is... The bottle is uh, uh, the bottle is, is gone, this whole flame is gone, and you can sit at the front or a back side of the city of your car and nothing happens to you. That's an entirely different story as with gasoline, right? So gasoline would lead to really a spectacular flame everywhere around. So if we think about hydrides as a, as a natural means to store hydrogen, then we should think uh, about the following thing. We want to have a material that we will slightly heat up by the waste heat from our car and this will evolve hydrogen which will which will power the fuel cell and that drives electric engine. So one of the key features here is this low temperature of thermal decomposition. Because if, if you were to about to heat your store to excessively high temperature, it just doesn't make a bloody sense, right? And it's also pretty dangerous. So how could we uh, manipulate the temperature of thermal decomposition? I was looking at this problem many years ago, actually 20 years ago, uh, encouraged by Pete Edwards. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I started lots of different papers, mostly by Egon Wieberg 
who was a leading uh, authority in hydrides for many, many years, and I discovered that there is a very simple relationship. Namely, the te temperature of thermal decomposition of a hydride depends on standard electrochemical potential of a metal cation metal pair, or metal cation at higher oxidation state, metal cation at a lower oxidation state. D2 must be involved as a pair in the process of releasing hydrogen, just because releasing hydrogen is simply a redox reaction for hydrogen. So there is nothing weird here, uh, especially if we take into account that there is Hammond's rule, and Hammond's rule really relates kinetics of reactions to thermodynamics of reactions, and of course we do have many exceptions from it, and we do have catalysts. Nevertheless, Hammond's rule is a very natural thing in chemistry. So that what it says essentially that if you have a substrate of chemical reaction and a product, and you've got somewhere a transition state, uh, you can drop it as you want, you can mix the two and also decrease a bit of the barrier, which is uh, typically occurring in real materials. But now if you decrease the energy of the products, so you affect thermodynamics, then your crossing point will move down, right? So that's a Marcus-type approach, telling the Hammond's rule should really be there. And this is nothing but a Hammond's rule for a hydride. The only thing which is, which is really spectacular is the extent. You see, lithium hydride is so stable that you can actually melt it at about 700 centigrade, and you can electrolyze it if you want in the molten state. So it's just so stable. And you must heat it a bit more to evolve hydrogen and vapors of lithium. On the other hand, mercury hydride is so unstable that it could barely be prepared in trace amounts at minus 25 centigrade. So, so the, the, the vast window of temperature here, and as you can see, different types of fuel cells that you can actually feed with that hydrogen. So, uh, although chemical reviews do not like to publish original research, I managed to sneak through this dependence, uh, you know, uh, into the paper, and, uh, and this has been somewhat appreciated by the community. So, we were looking since then on very, very different types of materials for storing hydrogen, and, and, and here you see a very simple chemical reaction. This is ammonia borane. Now, ammonia borane, by formula, is isoelectronic to ethane. But ethane is in normal conditions a gas, but this is a white crystalline solid. Now, my very first sample of ammonia borane came from a chemical weapon factory in Russia uh, by a special delivery truck. Uh, it, 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 it costed me 10,000 bucks. I remember this was the beginning of my research in, in, in Poland. But actually, they could deliver the best stuff. Now, this factory no longer exists. It exploded. Uh, and it wasn't any diversion. It is simply that if you look back to, to the 50s, to the 40s, to the Manhattan Project, and then to the Cold War, everyone who tried to make boron hydrides uh, was a successful until a certain point. And then everything burned down because those things are inherently unstable. Now, this is very, very stable, or it's metastable, because you can have it as a crystalline substance, but uh, if you heat it to more than 80 centigrade, it starts decomposing, but in a very, very mild way. So it's not explosive. So we have a huge tank of a kilogram of a substance in our lab who could blow the whole building, but it, it, it of course doesn't do that. So, so we, we mix it with metal hydride and we, we get to what is called amidoboranes and some H uh, here, HX is released. So look at the lithium compound here. The formula is very simple. It's ionic salt. It stores nearly 14 weight percent of hydrogen. Right? So the Department of Energy, US Department of Energy target is set at 6.5 weight percent, but it encompasses the entire store, the whole storage system, including the, the container, the valves, everything. So you must start really high to get there to 6.5. So, and you see that it decomposes at very modest temperature, starts decomposing around 90 degrees centigrade, which is just perfect 
for low temperature fuel cells because they operate at around this sort of temperature, 70 to 90. Uh, so, so, of course, you want to put this hydrogen directly into a fuel cell, and you shouldn't either cool the, the cell too much or heat it up so it dries away. So that's a nice compound. We published it in 2009, but uh, we were spooned by, uh, by a very big group, uh, international group, which published this uh, sometime before in Nature Materials. And if you, and if you, uh, uh, stu if you study this material more, more carefully, you discover, you know, at, at, at around here, a very small feature, a very characteristic triplet, which belongs to chemically bound ammonia. So ammonia modes get non-degenerate when, when it coordinates to a metal center. And we said, OK, this is some traces of ammonia bound to lithium. And why was that important? Because people who wrote the Nature Materials paper were silent about impurities of hydrogen. They said, all that's evolved is essentially hydrogen, but this is not true. They haven't been looking at proper impurities. And ammonia is a very important impurity here, which carries at least 40% of mass of gas, which evolves. And this, of course, kills the, the uh, fuel, low temperature fuel cells. Uh, well, uh, we published this in 2009, and, uh, and we were looking further into these materials. And we proposed that actually, Ammonia borane, it can be erected with a metal as well, like with cesium or with lithium, but preferably with cesium if you want to get some nice uh, proof of this reaction. And then something very unusual happens, namely some hydrogen evolves, but you form such a long chain thing, okay, like, uh, like let's say, n-pentane. Uh, and this ammonia sticks to methyl. And it can go off also. It can produce you this kind of salt, which is even richer in hydrogen. So we published this in 2014, and we characterized this, uh, this as a whole range of salts. In the gas phase, this anion can be in the standard N-alkane form, but it also can take, you can, you can view at it as let's say this is a borohydrite in which two hydrogens were substituted by those NH2BH3 groups that you, that you saw before. Or you can view it in, in, in many other ways. And then there is a gauche conformation which is characterized by dihydrogen bonding. That is a bonding between hydride and proton. And this is actually lower in energy. However, in the solid state, you can see both forms, depending which compound you take, because the key interaction is for a small cation is that of terminal hydrogens with lithium rather than hydrogen-hydrogen interaction. So if you look at crystal structure of lithium salt, we call it B3N2 in short, or sodium, you see those chains. There is, uh, there is some substitutional disorder. Uh, in, in the material, so we should see two of them. But then, the same thing, it starts bending already for potassium, but for rubidium and cesium, you clearly see the gauche form here. See? So you see the dihydrogen bonding, and that's because interactions of those terminal hydrides to rubidium are just much weaker. So this is, starts becoming a predominant interaction. So the, the, we call it the hand dog, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, materials. So there is a whole series of them be, be, which, we, which we prepared and characterized. And they are really nice in terms of hydrogen storage properties because they deliver, lithium salt delivers you just pure hydrogen, no impurity at all. However, it does so in some steps. And here you see only the low temperature part. I'm sorry, the temperature scale is gone here. This is essentially up to 150 centigrade. All hydrogen uh, is of. Unfortunately, these materials share the fate of many other NBH materials known. Namely, they evolve hydrogen, but you cannot recharge the store. So the only way you, you, you would act at the fuel uh, station is that you either substitute a cartridge for a new one, and they recycle it at some chemical factory, 
Well, that's essentially the way. That's what, what, what you would do. Well, borohydrides also belong to very hydrogen-rich materials. This is a pretty heavy metal, yttrium. Nevertheless, this material still, still contains lots of hydrogen. And here is one curiosity about it. You see here two crystallographic forms. And one of them is cubic, another, another is much lower symmetry. Okay? In fact, it's cubic, but it has some kink chains. If you just look at it as a chemist, and green, green things are central borons. I do not show hydrogens here. Here you see hydrogens. The, the coordination of yttrium is very similar in both cases. So you say, how come can this be real? Maybe, maybe something is wrong here. This pretty much resembles the story, the famous story of alpha and beta polonium, which is simple cubic. Beta polonium is the simplest crystal structure we may have, a simple cubic structure. But alpha polonium has a tiny rhombic distortion. And the question is, is it real? How can this be that, that, you, that something so similar should be a different structure? But in this case, it is real. We, we looked at this uh, using many different uh, techniques. And for example, this peculiar, uh, this peculiar uh, high temperature structure, no, sorry, hi high temperature structure has no imaginary phonons if you calculate properly the, the vibrations of a solid. So it's real. Okay, it's, it's, it's stable, it's metastable. And then the only method, experimental method, where you can really distinguish the two is 18.9 yttrium NMR. The difference of chemical shift is huge and noticeable. But if you look with infrared spectroscopy, Raman, whatever you want, you'll, you'll see nearly no difference. Of course, these materials differ also in terms of hydrogen storage properties, because one of them is metastable. So if you look at thermogravimetric profile for above, they are not very different. But calorimetric profile is vastly different. So for, for, for uh, you see, for, for low temperature form, you see here such a small signal. This is the, the broken line. And this is the transition to high temperature form, which is incomplete because this is too fast scanning. So then you see two endothermic peaks of decomposition. But for high temperature form, you see no transition. You see very different first decomposition step. Much easier, releasing gas at much lower cost and much, at, at a bit lower temperature here. So the ideal thing to do would be to have high temperature form as a hydrogen store. Unfortunately, and people tried this on many different materials, if you use it and try to recharge it, this material, by the way, has some problems with recharging as well. But if you do that and recharge it, it will go back to low temperature form. So you cannot recycle properly to the form that, that you would like to use. OK, so now. The, the last part, I think, about hydrogen storage materials will be about a method to produce rather high-quality hydrogen storage materials chemically. As you've seen, uh, there is a demand on a chemical recharging of materials just because some materials are stubborn and you cannot recharge it just by putting even a very high pressure of hydrogen. For example, aluminum would be lovely. Aluminum hydride is a very high density hydride that contains uh, 10 weight percent of hydrogen. Aluminum is rather cheap. You make it uh, electrochemically. Uh, uh, where, wherever you have a water dam, you can have lots of aluminum. And, uh, and the hydride would be lovely, especially that it's not very reactive to air, because it is very fast covered with a layer of hydroxide on the surface of the grain in, by reaction with water. So once you have it, you can recycle it many times. You could recycle it many times. Unfortunately, it has been shown that in order to charge aluminum with hydrogen, you need gigapascals of hydrogen. So that's an experiment that you can perform only in the diamond anvil cell. That's actually another part of our activity, the very high pressure studies. OK, so I want to introduce a very simple, mathematic method here of producing hydrogen storage materials. 
Let's say you want to produce cesium yttrium borohydride, which has two different metals. Now, as a chemist, you would say, okay, maybe I could use some salt of cesium and some derivative of this complex anion and mix them together and do metathesis. And it looks simple on the paper, of course. But then you say, how can I improve the thing so I could separate this from that? And the trick is extremely simple. The old rule of chemistry, similar like similar. So if you have a small, relatively small and hard cation, a relatively small anion, they'll stand, stick together. But if you take a really big cation, like tetrabuthyl ammonium here, and here a very large anion, and this anion is not something that you can uh, readily buy, uh, it's for research purpose. This is a very complex aluminate. You see aluminum here, four oxygens, and a very, very big, very rich in fluorine anion. This is either the aluminate containing perfluorinated terdbutyl, or this could be a family of barf salts, where this is boron, and then you have arils, but which are also pretty much fluorinated. So what this gives to an ion is a very weakly coordinating capability. So these are classical WCAs, which are called weakly coordinating anions. And, and the, the advantage here is that after you finish the reaction, this thing is soluble in organic solvents of even very low polarity or moderate polarity. And this is not. So this precipitates. Now I want to show you that there is a real advantage here. So if you compare X-ray diffraction patterns for the classical synthesis, that is that you take yttrium chloride, lithium borohydride, this cesium borohydride, and you ball mill it, or you disc mill it, which is a classical mechanochemistry approach to synthesis of hydrides, then you end up with something that has awfully many crystalline phases, impurities, and you cannot get rid of them. And the major one is lithium chloride. Of course, it doesn't give you very strong diffraction, but in fact, it constitutes 50% of your sample by mass. If you want to have a, a, a practical high source of hydrogen, having many hydrogen atoms, why on earth you would have lithium chloride, which is 50% of it in your sample? From, let's say, 12 weight percent, you end up at 6, and you cannot fulfill any reasonable requirements. This is why this is all called dead mass uh, in the community, so you would carry a dead mass on board of your vehicle or your telephone. This is the, the, the system prepared by our method, with method, and you see there are mostly beautiful uh, peaks from your cubic thing. The, this is the only impurity detected. We even don't know what this is. Uh, it's it, it's, it, it's tiny, really tiny, tiny trace of a peak here. So it's very pure material. And if you then look at infrared spectra or Raman spectra, you see just the same. So the sample is really pure, and you can study this properly. And therefore, you, it's not surprising to see that the thermal decomposition profiles differ a lot for the, the, the classically prepared sample and for wet chemistry method. And there are dramatical differences in, uh, uh, in thermochemistry of the composition. And this is to say many things that are in the literature are simply wrong, or at least with large error bar. What is the beauty of the method? Well, if you mix, that's, that's a solution method. Solution methods in chemistry correspond to what I would call a negative pressure regime. Because normally, things want to be solid, they want to combine, and there is a lots of energy of combining things together, forming crystalline lattice, that's crystalline uh, lattice energy. But if you do smart chemistry, coordinate them, you dissociate them, this is what would happen at of a formally negative pressure, right? So you are working in this regime, and you can, from this high energy state, go to some lower energy state, which not necessarily is a ground state. And this is to say you can prepare metastable things using this method. 
And the proof is here. We have prepared lithium and sodium salts which cannot be reached by standard methods at all. And they are, of course, even hydrogen richer. Well, since they are metastable, they are of no use as hydrogen stores because you can never recharge them. But this is a proof of concept to show that if you use such a method, you can, you can go from here to this metastable thing. But you never reach it from here energetically. But, you, but, but this is a sort of downhill reaction that you can do. Uh, so this is the Deadmas problem that we that we solved, and this is my close associate. That's myself. You see the Deadmas problem is solved, and we publish this in Angevante and Dalton transactions. Okay, so uh, the last part on hydrides is to show you some nice surprise that eventually. Uh, stems from this research. This is an, an awfully hydrogen-rich salt that we were first to prepare. This has ammonia, ammonia cations, magnesium, very light metal, and five borohydrates, so a lot of hydrogen. I think close to 20 weight percent, a lot. And that's metastable, which is not good for hydrogen storage, but it's crystal structure. But if you start decomposing this, here is a surprise. Uh, from EDX, you get boron to nitrogen one to one with very small impurities. This is a 8,000 times magnification. You re rinse uh, impurities with water, so magnesium goes off, chlorine goes off, they stay at a very low level, and what you get? At 150 degrees centigrade, you are getting amorphous boron nitride. Now, boron nitride is a very technologically important material. Uh, both hexagonal and cubic. But cubic is, is more important because it's second only to diamond in terms of hardness. So this amorphous boron nitrate contains about 5 to 10 percent quasi-cubic form and, and the rest is quasi-hexagonal. So we obviously look into getting more of cubic form now, but uh, this is surprising anyway because that, that you can get it at 150 degrees centigrade, because in order to make it in the factory, you must use 1,500 centigrade by high temperature reactions. So that's a nice low temperature pathway to very hard material. Uh, okay, here I, I go to the second part of my talk, uh, which is possible uh, candidates for, for superconductors. And here, uh, I must say, we have really joint interest with Jose because he also is looking at some materials that he theorized to be superconductors and like to work on them in experiment, but this is problematic. Well, this is also my story, uh, so that it shows you, because we do both theory and experiment, that, that everything looks beautiful in the computer screen. But you know, but once you try to really make the things, uh, you, you, you sometimes get stuck. Nevertheless, if you are pressing enough, you can, you can get something out of it. So that's a classical uh, 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 graph showing you different families of superconductors, the classical BCS, as it evolved from, from discovery um, of mercury, uh, superconductivity in mercury, some heavy fermion here, here the uh, uh, fullerites, here oxocuprates, you know, up to what is now the, the, the best uh, critical temperature in these materials at elevated pressure. Here carbon materials, doped carbon materials or nanotubes, here the pnictites, and here also, what is BCS, not connected here, but should be connected really, BCS, but so it's hydrogen 3S at pressure of close to 150 gigapascals. And then, as you certainly know, this, this result is now even better because people got to pretty much 300K room temperature superconductivity, and the only drawback is that you need 2 million atmospheres to do this. And of course, and of course, uh, that's lanthanum hydride. And of course, once you release the pressure, all effect is gone. Just because the pressure is a principal force preventing the localization, uh, the, 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 let's say the polaron formation in your structure and subsequent localization. 
uh, of, of, of charge carriers. So we have been looking at the materials called fluoroargentates. In fact, I started to look at these materials when I was still with Hoffman at Cornell. And uh, uh, we wrote a paper. Uh, we started looking at 2,000 of these materials. At that time, we used extremely simple language of simply what chemists is always using and what we teach, teach students, that in order to have good bonding, you must have good match of orbital energies and special extent of orbitals. And we were looking at those materials after screening, again, literature for a long time, and we saw an awful degree of similarity between f silver fluorides and copper oxides. Now, in language of, of, of solid-state physics, it's expressed differently, but the result is the same. So if you, if you look at solid-state of copper oxides, copper-2 oxides, such as the famous precursor of superconductors, then you have this upper Hubbard band, lower Hubbard band. You have oxygen p-states here. You have charge transfer gap. Now, when you move to silver-2+, and take a look into the classical textbooks on inorganic chemistry, you see there half a page on silver too. In old editions, you see two lines. But, but, but now there is more. And then what happens is that both upper and lower Hubbard band move significantly down in energy. So this is because the second ionization potential of silver is the largest among all metals except alkalis. So for alkalis, you cannot prepare second oxidation state. For silver, you can, but, but it's awfully difficult. The only thing that can do it is fluorine, preferably fluorine radicals, not fluorine molecules. So you would, you would get into an awkward situation with oxygen having a negative charge transfer gap. And in consequence, material, this material is known, but it disproportionates because of negative charge transfer gap. So if you move to fluorine, decrease the energy of p-states from oxygen to fluorine, you re-establish the normal situation that you know from copper oxides. And now the question is to what extent there is a similarity. And this 2001 paper, which started really the whole story, we showed at least five key similarities. And as time was passing by, we saw more and more, and they were all important from the viewpoint of, of superconductivity. So in 2008, we predicted that, uh, that if you have a, a flat layer form of AGF2, it would have a magnetic super exchange between silver centers of the order of 300 milli electron volts, which would be freeling because it would be the largest super exchange coupling ever seen in any material. We started experimental research, which recently has been much more successful due to involvement of physicists. This is uh, Jose Lorenzana from Rome, uh, a great expert on optical properties of mag magnets and superconducting materials. And we were looking also with the help of very, very new uh, meta-GGA functionals. So it was a combined experimental theoretical research. We were looking at ambient pressure AGF2. And this is what we get. Uh, actually, my, my PhD student, Jacob, got the first, the first data here. So this is a Raman spectrum. Uh, in the region, as you see from the phonon range, from the, from the oscillation range here, you see very nice oscillations uh, peak, even a shoulder here, up to 3,000 reciprocal centimeters. And you see very, very broad feature, which gets narrower and narrower as you decrease temperature. The shape and the fact that it narrows down make it very similar to a peak that you see for classical oxocuprate. This peak comes from scattering on bimagnons, so on magnetic excitations, which normally, optically, are not allowed, but if you take two of them and add a small contribution from phonons, becomes allowed for scattering, for two-dimensional material. So here, this result got confirmed also on other excitation lines, where we saw some interesting 
excitation profile, if you take the energy of laser line, you, you see something interesting happening. And this was the first proof that we have a very strong magnetic superexchange just because the scale here is about 70% of this scale for oxocuprate. So we knew that we are in a similar range of energies here. And then we, we performed neutron scattering. And this is a classical inelastic neutron scattering spectra. And a beam scientist at, 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 uh, at Isis Rall in the UK who helped us to, to, to do the measurement. And you see very flat feature here at about 150 milli electron volts which is essentially two times magnetic superexchange constant plus a contribution from interlayer superexchange. So, and, and here you see a vertical feature in the k, uh, this is q, q or k uh, 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 vector, that corresponds precisely to the k vector along which you have magnetic ordering. So, and this is the theoretical uh, 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 model, where you should have this feature here, you should have this feature here. We proved that we have a material with super exchange of 70 milli electron vo volts, and so far, only oxocuprates had ha larger values. No other material ever approached 70 milli electron volts. If you look at the electronic structure, you calculate it using hybrid functionals, that is, you are not bound by mod about you in your calculation. Then you see that the electronic structure of this material and lanthanum copper oxide are extremely similar. So you see lower Hubbard band here, which is mostly centered on silver. You see lower Hubbard band here, centered on copper. You see upper Hubbard band here, upper Hubbard band here. Then you see here valence band, which is, which is you know, very strong mixture of, of silver and, and fluorine, very strong mixture of copper and oxygen. And you see it's really similar. The difference is that this is a bit puckered, much more than, let's say, uh, uh, sheets, copper, oxygen sheets in YBCO. So you see here from this uh, projection that it's really puckered. So can we make it flat? And does it pay back to make it flat? Well, yes. So this publication last year, we showed that if you take experimental structure with 70 milli electron volts and you progressively unpacker it so that you form flat layer here, which still has some angle other than 180 degrees between silver floor and silver, already J is increased twice. But if you do a perfect flat layer like this, it can go up to 200 milli electron volts. So you see it can exceed oxocuprates. And how one can do this? Well, it will not do it by itself. You must help it. So here is a modeling of, 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 of a surface layer of AGF2 placed on a proper substrate, fluoride substrate. And you see the, the layer is flat, doesn't want to pucker. And you are getting values larger than for oxocuprates here. So the spins on silvers feel each other very strongly in this material. And now if you are interested to see whether by doping you will localize charge or rather spread it and make a metal, then you can study this as well. And here are calculated spin density of, of, of electron and hole doped AGF2. And you can see that if you take a real material, one atmosphere material, then it will localize. So you will clearly form the place where charge is localized. Here it is silver 1 plus, here it's silver 3 plus. OK, the spin density stays on silver 2. But here it's gone, OK? And then if you take a look, a broader look, what you can do to this, not only this uh, AGF2 at ambient pressure, but also to the flat form, hypothetical flat form, and you compare it with copper oxides, you see a very nice picture where you see that for, let's say, flat uh, system, you barely see a polaron here, but its formation requires higher energy than if it were a metal, it would be then zero. 
But then the phonon is actually helping the polaron to localize, but by a very small amount of energy. If you do the same theoretical experiment for electron doping, you see no polaron whatsoever. So then you know you have a real metal and very likely you have a superconductor. That's what you've been after. Uh, and then it's rather similar to lanthanum to copper oxide, uh, in which, however, you can still even see a polaron. But it's not stable because the phonon is not helping it at all. What these arrows tell you here, as compared to this one, is that there is a very, very strong electron phonon coupling in the system. Now that's good. That's also very good for superconductivity. Well, if you take the ambient pressure material and dope it, the charge localizes. And here it's a proof from calculations on real systems. This is a classical 1 8 doping, 12.5% doping. You see all silver ones are localized here. So this is not a metal. In order to make superconductor, you must have flat layer form and dope it preferentially with electrons. And this result, recently result, uh, set, you know, the idea for, for, for experiments. But this is a very difficult experiment to do because of very high reactivity of AGF2. Well, it's not a material that uh, you can handle if you are if you do not have experience to work with such materials. It's inherently strongly oxidizing. In order to send samples, actually we never send samples by plane. That's forbidden. I would be in jail if I did it. Uh, we always take a lorry. Once I needed to send 100 gram uh, sample for neutron measurement, and it was quite, you know, uh, an enterprise. Well, I, I would like you to appreciate the oxidative power of these materials from this graph. Here we, we show a typical graph of, of valence and conduction bands that people use in spectroelectrochemistry. So they draw, let's say, for copper oxide. Here is your valence band. The top of the band is 530 uh, electron volts. And this is your work function of the material for a given surface, which was calculated here. This is your conduction band. For titanium dioxide, the most commonly used electrode in, in these experiments, that's 550. That's similar. For platinum metal, 593 is a work function. And this is the most difficult to be oxidized metallic thing that we have. And you can attach it to electrodes. You can do different things. However, if you, if you go from silver via silver 1, here is very peculiar metallic silver 2F, to silver F2, the work function increases to 7.76 electron volt. And here is a bottom of conduction band. So if you attach platinum to it, it will get oxidized in a second. If you, if you have a single layer of AGF2 and you model it, it's even worse. But if you have a single layer which is flat, it's a bit better. And actually, there is one electrode that can handle this, but only one. This is boron dope diamond. So this is diamond valence and conduction band. And you see, if you even even if you have you know our electron hungry AGF2 here with its conduction band, the top of the valence band is still lower for boron dope diamond. That's why we could use this electrode to prepare AGF2 in very harsh conditions, anhydrous HF, low temperature, and high current. And you can electrolyze silver 1 and get to silver 2 in this way. OK, now the last part of it is devoted to what the, those silver 2 materials can do, except being good precursors for superconductors. Well, as I showed you, one part of the story is that they exhibit very strong magnetic super exchange. 
nearly as strong as oxocuprates, but this is a Packard system. So it's losing exchange from, from the beginning. Can we improve on that? Yes, we can beat oxocuprates. Here is a graph showing you the strength of antiferromagnetic super exchange, row value calculated for different classes of materials, including copper fluorides here with four bonds around copper, two bonds around copper, silver fluorides with four bonds around uh, silver and two. And you see from the beginning that silver systems are much of same type, are much more strongly coupled. And this is because of a very strong hybridization, orbital mixing that, 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 that we've seen. And also you see that for one-dimensional materials containing silver with only two substituents, which means I'm an infinite chain here, silver fluorine, silver fluorine, and that's a cation. You can get to really huge values if your angle between AG, FAG is 180 centigrade. So this is the classical good enough Kanamori rules telling you you should be close to 180, then you improve things. But this value is outstanding. A row value is 330 milli electron volts. If you take these values, and they were calculated using the best functional available for this sort of calculations, and you compare them to what is known from experiment for some lower values, you see you must downscale it by 90%. So you do this, and you still get 300. So for this material, you get about 300 milli electron volts. What is the record at the moment? 240 for one-dimensional oxocuprate. So this would be 25% more. And we do experiments on this one. Well, in near-infrared, you clearly see the absorption band. And if you take, uh, with some error, of course, because it's an uh, uh, equipment function here, but if you take the energy of this band, you consider what oscillation is coupled to this, you end up with a value 294 milli electron volts, which is not a bad agreement with theory. But then you do muon, uh, muon spectroscopy, muon spin resonance. And this technique is extremely sensitive to magnetic ordering in three dimensions. And at, at, at 70 millikelvin, this thing doesn't order, which tells you that there is huge anisotropy of the order of 6 times 10 to the minus 6, which would be the largest anisotropy that people have seen. So this material would be most closely similar to ideal one-dimensional antiferromagnet that, according to physics, orders only at 0K. So that's a, that's a liquid, that's magnetic liquid. So here is a classical graph showing you reduced uh, nil temperature expressed in the values of, uh, of this J. And here it's your magnetic anisotropy. And here are two-dimensional and one-dimensional materials. And the record in inorganic chemistry is this one-dimensional oxocuprate. This is the best organic material that physics has. And this is our new challenger. It's one order of magnitude better than, than the organic system. For physicists, it's exciting. For chemists, probably less, because you have huge J in, within the chain and extremely f small J between chains. So you cannot order the system. Nevertheless, physics loves it. So here is a summary of what you have. For, for magnetic superexchange interactions. Black are things which have been measured. As you can see, we, we have show also some perovskite here, 100 milli electron volts. This material, nearly 300 milli electron volts, which is the record currently. And the green values are calculated. And our main target is now this guy, of course, AGF2, flat layer on the surface because this system should be doped to generate superconductivity. Here are values for corresponding copper oxides and for the old record holder, strontium copper oxide. 
And the last slide is that silver is such a, such a powerful spin polarizer that we could use it also to some other sort of lattices. Let's say here is cadmium oxide. This is all cadmium oxide except that in this corner sits silver rather than cadmium, silver too. And look what it does. It not only has spin density around, on, because it's all silver here in the corner, but spin density is transferred far, far away from that silver to oxygen atoms, and even a, a tiny one on cadmium, which shouldn't have any spin, but it's forced to. It's forced to use some of the p orbitals, which are empty, in order to to mix with a, with a closed shell D and and make some spin density. So this shows you how powerful silver 2 is. And what this means is that you could add a tiny bit of silver 2 to your lattice and have a, and, and, and have a very strong coupling between magnetic uh, spin uh, uh, um, coordinate, electronic uh, degree of freedom, lattice degrees of freedom. And you could ha also it po possibly enhance what people try to do, enhance coupling of magnetic moments on two lanthanides via silver. What is currently the best for magnetic memory are lanthanide complexes. However, they are volatile. Just because the interaction between them is so weak that this memory is best at 4K, but at 10K it forgets everything. Here you could probably use silver to, to enhance the feature. Okay, so with that, uh, I'd like to thank all the sponsors over all these years that supported those bo both branches of our of our studies. More recently, uh, different projects uh, from Polish National Science Center, uh, computational resources, uh, and uh, if, if if you'd like to read a very light read, really on silver too, is the Silverland. I call it Silverland. Uh, that's in Journal of Superconductivity and Novel Magnetism. That's actually the post-conference material from this lovely Italian conference on superconductivity where Jose and I met. And uh, some of it is, most of it is, has been uh, traditionally in chemistry journals, but now we are moving more to physics journals uh, just because those systems are of interest to physicists. Uh, while chemists have some problem with them because they are very hard to work with and, uh, and you need a fluorine lab, fluorine chemistry lab to do this. So not, uh, not everyone would like to do this chemistry. Okay, so with that, uh, I'd like to invite you to our Center of New Technologies and thank you for coming today and for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcast, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at www.qut.edu.au slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast. <laughs>